0: This morning, in case twenty-one twelve seventy-one Moore versus Harper.
1: Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka
2: here with Professor Akil Amar. Hello, Akhil. Uh, hello, Andy. Uh, today, I'm otherwise known as Miss Daisy, and Andy will explain why.
1: Yes. Well, Akil and I, of course, we this week was the uh, the oral argument in Moore versus Harper, and as we had said, we were going to try to do. We drove down to uh, Washington and uh, attended the oral arguments, so uh,
2: that was... And by we drove down, Andy means that he drove me down, so I was Miss Daisy. Correct. Because Andy doesn't trust my driving, and I don't trust my driving, and I trust Andy's driving. Just like with this podcast, you see. He drives. Um, I I ride.
1: (laughs) Well, I think, you know, my family calls me a dray horse because I... uh, you know i love to drive i don't i would fly the plane if i could so yeah and and not only that but of course after that we we rushed back to the car and drove back to new york where uh akil appeared at an event at the new york historical society with uh jeff rosen and then back to princeton for me and back to connecticut for him the next morning so it was quite a uh a hectic thing but boy was it memorable You know, it's uh, it's interesting. Akil's been cited by the Supreme Court uh, more than any any other uh, scholar under age 65. And so you would think that he was there a lot. But in fact, I think this is only what? Second oral argument you've ever attended at
2: the court? I think the second, maybe the third, and of course that statistic which I use a lot—most cited scholar under age sixty-five—is extremely self-serving because I am at age sixty-four. <laughs> so it gives me it gives me a bit of an advantage over people who are, let's say, age thirty-two or thirty-six or what have you.
1: Fair enough. Although you've, you know, used other criteria over the years, which are some of the point is that they cite you a lot, and and uh, actually I would go further because. Not only are you cited, but you're cited across the spectrum on a, uh, politically, you're cited across the spectrum uh, on legal issues, and it's the nature of, of your work that it's been very broad, you know, that you've, you've had this holistic view of the Constitution, so it's in order to have much to say about a holistic view of the Constitution, you've had to become an expert on so many different areas of the Constitution, and therefore you write on it, and therefore if you do good work on it, you get cited.
2: And one of the really interesting things, Andy, that you and I uh, heard in the oral argument on on Wednesday, December 7th, this is, of course, the oral argument in the Moore versus Harper um, Independent State Legislature case, the ISL case, one of the things we heard, um, and Andy has prepared a whole bunch of clips from the oral argument, were multiple references to a very great constitutional scholar, a generalist, one of my role models, actually, uh, the great John Hart Ely, we heard actually from three SGs of various sorts, maybe five in all. Neil Katyal was one of the oral advocates, former acting solicitor general and my dear friend and uh, sometime co-author, and he's been on the podcast. We heard from former solicitor general, Don verley uh, We heard from a current solicitor general, pre We also heard from the chief justice, who uh, for a nanosecond was an um, acting solicitor general under Ken Starr. And from that side of the bench, we heard from Elena Kagan former sister general. So lots of SGs. So, you know, sometimes I describe my role on this
1: podcast as a stand in for the audience with that in mind here. I, I don't know how many of our audience has been in the Supreme court for oral arguments. Um, so I wanted to share my impressions and my experience of it, um, you know, with, with you. And I'd like to hear Akil's impressions as well. You know, I, uh, first of all, the building itself is, is quite awesome. You know, they originally was supposed to, so the court didn't meet in this uh, structure until the nineteen thirties. It had fairly modest uh, quarters before that. Well, these are not fairly modest, and it was the depression. There was extra money around when they when they were working on it, so they just kept making it bigger. Um, and as a result, it's it's quite grand when you are in the uh, on the outside when you enter. When you're and then when you're in the courtroom itself, it's there's room for a fair number a fair amount of seating. And the ceiling is extremely high. You could probably look up how high it is. There's a frieze over the area where the uh, justices sit that, um, you know, has impressive <laughs> figures. Um, there's no words, interestingly, around, like it doesn't say, like, in God we trust or justice for all or, or anything like that. No words are, are visible. Um, the whole thing had a sort of uh, formality, which I think was, was good. Um, there was a collegiality in the atmosphere, I thought, which was surprising, given that this was an adversarial proceeding and one which, you know, had a lot of, has, as we've said, carries a lot of danger for the republic. Um, but still, I think there was, there was a fair amount of respect in the air. We happened to be sitting right near the clerks. Um, we didn't engage with the clerks, so we we thought that would be you know unethical. But but they were there, um, so that that was interesting. They you know took notes, and um, that's all I can tell you about that. Um, and of course, the other thing that I noted was that as we were going in, many people had heard of America's Constitution. as people engaged us in conversation about the podcast, and so it was interesting that people that are, uh, you know. I guess, fairly high up in the legal profession or very interested in the legal profession, we're, we're engaged with it. So those were some of my impressions. Um, how about you, Akil?
2: Yes, Andy, you were quite the rock star when we were waiting in, uh, in line, or you would say online. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm from California, Andy's from New York, and then New York is online and California's in line. But when, when we were queuing up um, with, with, with others to get in the court, um, and uh, they realized Andy Lipko was there. This sort of titter went through the crowd. I know, you know that the voice. The crowd. <laughs> yes, yes. So, uh, what did Jack Kennedy say once? You know, I'm the man who accompanied uh, Jacqueline Kennedy to Paris or something like that. Um, that's what Prince, President Kennedy said, so that's how I felt. Now, um, you mentioned a couple of things. There is a, a grandeur to the building and a majesty to it, <clears throat> and um, it's awe-inspiring, Um it can also be slightly awkward. It can go to the justices' heads. And uh, all the iconography is about the past um, members of the court, which can lead the previous justices and chief justices, which perhaps can lead to to too much reverence for past court decisions at the expense of the Constitution itself. Now, you mentioned the frieze, especially from our angle, above the bench. There weren't any words, but it was actually Moses with the Ten Commandments, in fact, and here's what's interesting. The Ten Commandments were denoted just by Roman numerals, one through ten. That turns out to be really significant in certain establishment clause uh, cases because if, if you actually have the words, you're going to need to decide what is the first commandment. Is it just, I am the Lord thy God? Is it, I am the Lord thy God and you shall worship the Lord thy God with all that your heart, soul, you know, uh, mind and spirit? When does the first commandment, I keep wanting to say First Amendment, when does the first commandment end and the second one begin and the third? And truthfully, there are different traditions. First of all, uh, it appears, I think, at least twice um, in the Old Testament, I think in Deuteronomy and Leviticus or something, and different traditions, Catholic, Protestant, Jewish, punctuate actually the Ten Commandments truthfully differently. So it's brilliant if you just actually put the tables there with just one, two, three, uh, Roman 1, Roman 2 through Roman 10. So no word. That's, that's interesting. It could uh, be Arabic
1: um, numerals as opposed to Roman numerals and that wouldn't matter. What matters is that there aren't words.
2: Right, that you're not actually taking a position on which are the Ten Commandments and how are they worded. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, There is a collegiality among the justices and between them and the lawyers. Many of the lawyers are repeat players, especially the lawyers that we saw. As I said, three of of the lawyers, all three on one side, Uh, were or are uh, Solicitor General of the United States and to repeat, two of the justices um, had been in that role. At one point, Elena Kagan actually um, made a joke about being on different sides of the podium, conversing with Prologger because she uh, has been in Prologger's position um, at the podium. One final point, the language that they use to address each other I think is a good model for the rest of us. I... I think that the court is imperfect. I, I criticize the court for being, I think, sometimes too reverential toward its own case law. Maybe the, uh, the justices have too inflated a sense of themselves sometimes, and the building contributes to that and all sorts of other traditions and, and atmosphere. The clerks who are very much younger and serve for a year and very deferential because actually one um Bad uh, recommendation from a justice and the, the the clerk's legal career going forward would be uh, blemished, compromised. So there are a lot of factors that conspire to really feed the um, egos of the justices, and inflate their sense of their own importance and the court's importance. And it's hard not to have that go to your head. All that said. I think the court is far and away the least dysfunctional of the three branches of government. The House, I mean, you've got Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene, and in the Senate, four of the senators are my former students, and they're not nearly as serious as they used to be. So the, the, the House is dysfunctional. The Senate is not entirely functional. Um, the presidency, until recently, was occupied by Donald Trump, enough said. So this is far and away the least dysfunctional of our branches of government in my view, the the, the judiciary in general, the Supreme court in particular, these guys have done their homework. They've they've read the briefs. They, they are serious people. They're engaged and they're engaging each other respectfully and courteously on the bench, even though some of them are Republican appointees and some of them are democratic appointees more respectfully and seriously than you see elsewhere in DC and the lawyers Engage each other seriously and respectfully. Andy, I'm sure you notice that they my refer. Friend. Yes, they refer to opposing counsel, typically not as opposing counsel, but my friend on the other side. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a deep court tradition. I think the rest of America could learn from it. And I'm trying to model that myself by teaching with people that um, maybe vote differently than I.D., co-teaching with them, uh, co-authoring a brief um, with Steve Calabresi. And he and I, in 2016, we voted for different people. He voted for Trump. I voted for Clinton. But we've taught together for nine years, and we we are friends in every sense of the word, and not just rhetorically, but that begins, I think, perhaps, the, you know, genuine friendship can begin simply by calling someone a friend even before they really are a true friend in every way but but that's the right spirit with which to try to engage them even if they're making an argument on the other side so there's a lot that America can learn from by observing oral argument which unfortunately we we can't entirely. It's not televised, but you can listen to the audio. And even better, you can listen to Andy's audio clips because he's curated the experience for us even better. You mentioned, Andy, that you took notes in the courtroom from from the gallery. Um, And uh, there was a time when uh, members of the public were not allowed to take notes. I, in fact, co-authored a piece, an article in the New York Times criticizing that. Steve Calabresi actually joined me in co-authoring that and the court changed its policies actually. But there was a time when I, the last time I was at the Supreme Court, I was not allowed to take notes. It was over 20 years ago and the court has changed. And now not only can you take notes, but there's a transcript and there's a transcript that's available within 24 hours i think actually within a couple of hours yeah, it's within uh, two like,
1: hours and it's it's actually yeah. as a veteran of these it's a quite a good transcript there's occasional error but it's it's usually and, and, so it's not done by a machine maybe the first pass is done by a machine but it's uh it's more accurate than you would get from just a you know computerized transcription
2: and they're uploading. Actual audio um, uh, it, very shortly after the event, and and Andy, you spent a lot of time curating um, those audio clips. But this is a lot better than the court was, frankly, the last time I was there, which was I think twenty years ago. I think it was for the Paula Jones case, uh, Paula Jones against Clinton case.
1: The restrictions um, that they have are somewhat onerous. You can't, uh, you know, bring your phone. You can't bring your wa- up your Apple Watch, or your you know, your AirPods. I don't know why you can't bring your AirPods, but anyway. Um, and, um, you know, basically nothing electronic. And so as a result, on you know, we, we've been mentioning our Instagram feed that we've started on uh, for America's Constitution, and we will have some, some things on the Instagram feed this week. But we're not going to have pictures that we took inside the courtroom because it's just not allowed. However, oral arguments were three hours, and you could have heard a pin drop from the audience, um, for the most part. And I don't know about you, but I had no difficulty focusing on the argument for three hours. Um, it was, it was very nice. Not, I was saying, I was making a joke. It's the longest I've been separated from my phone in uh, in, since 2007, except for my heart surgery. Um, so, but it, uh, it actually it was quite nice to be separated from electronics in that sense. And, it really does contribute to a, a focus on the argument i think
2: it was an experience that made me in general um proud of the court uh proud of the country
1: and of course to go there with Akil, i have to say i'm, I'm very i'm very privileged i mean you know we we couldn't talk but uh given the occasional elbow when there's something from the brief that's being mentioned and uh and then you know the post mortem and the and the and also everyone that I met that comes up to him um, and uh, I have to uh, single
2: out uh, um, your friend uh, Chris the, the the great Chris Duggan um, a wonderful trial lawyer from Boston who really helped us with the brief in every way Chris has tried more than one hundred uh, jury uh, cases um, a lot of trial lawyers don't go to trial anymore. And even the ones who go to trial don't do jury trials. Chris has done over 100 jury trial cases. There are very few people in America um, who can say that. And I got a chance to introduce him to another one of my friends, Michael Dreeben, who actually is a great appellate lawyer par excellence, had been for the government for many decades, who had argued more than 100 cases to the United States Supreme Court as an appellate lawyer. So Michael dreben a hundred, more than a hundred Supreme court oral arguments, got a chance to, to meet Chris Duggan, more than a hundred um, jury trials. And I got to introduce them to each other because they didn't know each other, but I know each of them and hold each of them in very high regard. Indeed. So I anyway, I know
1: that's, that's a lot, but uh, we spent a lot of time on it because I think the experience had a big impact on, it certainly did on me. And I think perhaps even more, even, even, in Akil's case, more than he expected it to. So, all right. So now the argument itself. So as it, as it has become our, our want, I've, as Akil mentioned, I've gone through the transcript and, of course, I had some notes to begin with and pulled out a bunch of clips. In this case, there's 21 clips. That's too many clips for one episode, so we're going to break this up into at least two episodes, and then we're hopeful that we'll, maybe we'll have a guest after that to discuss um discuss it further because this is important and it's particularly and it's important to us also having worked on the brief so um, if,
2: if the court rules the wrong way it will be one of the most momentous and disastrous uh, cases in decisions in american history if it rules the right way and um, maybe it won't be quite as memorable i remember once i told a friend you know uh, shortly after i got tenure i say I said, you know, this getting tenure doesn't really seem to make much of a difference. And he says, well, of course it doesn't. It's not getting tenure that makes the difference. So this will be more or less significant in part depending on, on the, the, the result. But yes, we, we need to uh, address this with great care because the possible implications for um, America and the world are momentous.
1: Okay, so now we're going to get into some clips. Um, and that means we're going to get into some issues. Um, so here's what we're going to do we're going to cover what we see as the major issues that were bandied about during these three hours of arguments Um, we'll start by giving you some opening statements and then we'll get into them and you will hear every justice's voice at least once and you'll hear all of the uh advocates at least once in many cases you know more than once so um let's start here with the opening statement uh by neil katyal he he led off for respondents so this was after petitioner had about an hour of back and forth you don't worry you'll hear from him uh from them but um this opening statement i think was a good way to introduce uh, the oral argument
2: and andy when you say respondents those are the folks on our side of the case
1: Yes. People who are the, the anti... Should I say good the, guys? The
2: anti-ISL folks. Mm-hmm.
3: Yes, okay. the
1: good
2: guys.
3: Okay.
1: Okay. So here's,
4: the, here's Neil. Mr. Cotiel. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. For 233 years, states have not read the Elections Clause the way you just heard. There are two reasons to affirm. One is that when enacting legislation, there's no such thing as an independent state legislature. The other is that North Carolina statutes authorize what the North Carolina court did. I'll focus on the first. Petitioner's idea that state legislatures created by state constitutions are independent of them is wrong. It is rejected by the Articles of Confederation, rejected by the early state constitutions, rejected by the founding practice, especially in New York, where judges vetoed federal election bills. It's also rejected by this court in cases such as Smiley and Hildebrandt, Just three years ago in Rucho, this court promised state constitutions can provide standards for state courts to apply and singled out for approval a Florida court decision that used a state constitution to invalidate a federal map. To accept petitioners' claim, you'd have to ignore the text, history, and structure of our federal constitution as well as nearly every state constitution today. Petitioners say for two centuries, nearly everyone has been reading the clause wrong. That's a lot of wrong and a lot of wrong past selections. Frankly, I'm not sure I've ever come across a theory in this court that would invalidate more state constitutional clauses as being federally unconstitutional, hundreds of them from the founding to today. It's worth taking a pause to think about what petitioners are saying. They claim the word legislature means a species of state law that has literally never existed. State lawmaking, unconstrained by a state constitution. If the founders intended to create that animal, surely someone would have said something. Finally, the blast radius from their theory would sow elections chaos, forcing a confusing two-track system with one set of rules for federal elections and another for state ones. Case after case would wind up in this court with a political party on either side of the V. That would put this court in a difficult position instead of leaving it to the 50 states.
1: Okay, and then at that point, the justice began questioning. Um, so... Do you want to comment on that one, or should I play the other one first?
2: Um, I do want to comment on it. I thought that was brilliant. Um, he pulled a lot of things together, text, history, structure, precedent, practice, consequences. Well done. And I think in less than two minutes, I think in the end, I'm cautiously optimistic that uh, Neil wins his case, and he opened with a, a really winning uh, presentation. And by recent court practices and the new traditions, um, each lawyer gets a couple of minutes before um, the justices um, have at the lawyer. And Neil used his opening uh, two minutes extremely well, in my expert opinion.
1: Okay, so now we're going to listen to uh, the Solicitor General Prelogar. Now, um, keep in mind this was about an hour and a half after we heard, you know, what you just heard. Um, because, you know, Neil was on for about an hour with his question, with questions, and then came um, Solicitor General, Attorney Varelli, or General Varelli, um, and uh, for about, I guess, a half hour, um, maybe it was a little bit more, anyway, for, for quite a while, and then came uh, Solicitor General Prelogor. So here's, now she's, she's here as an amicus. It says on the uh, the transcript, Um, but on behalf of the government. So here we go.
0: General Preleger.
5: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Throughout our nation's history, state legislatures enacting election laws have operated within the bounds of their state constitutions, enforced by state judicial review. This practice dates from the Articles of Confederation, and the framers carried it forward by using parallel language in the Elections Clause to assign state legislatures a duty to make laws. Text, longstanding practice, and precedent show that the Elections Clause did not displace this ordinary check on state lawmaking. Petitioners' contrary theory rejects all of this history and would wreak havoc in the administration of elections across the nation— Their theory would invalidate constitutional provisions in every single state, many tracing back to the founding. That would sow chaos on the ground as state and federal elections would have to be administered under divergent rules, and federal courts, including this court, would be flooded with new claims often at the 11th hour in the midst of hotly contested elections. The court should adhere to the consistent practice that has governed for more than two centuries and should reject petitioners' atextual, ahistorical, and destabilizing interpretation of the elections clause.
1: Okay, that's it. Your comments?
2: Another winner. I don't think I've ever met Solicitor General Prelogar. Neil is my protege, my friend. And Prelogar, I believe, is, is Neil's protege. So, by the, the transitive law of proteges, that makes General Prelogar my, my my grand protege <laughs> of a certain sort, of grand um, student, so to speak. And and I'm very uh, proud of my students. So she sounded many of the same themes that uh, as did Neil. She uh, highlighted one point that was maybe only um, implicit in Neil's formulation that one particular unfortunate consequence of ISL would be that you're going to have the possibility of completely different rules for federal elections and state elections, and that doesn't make sense. Just um, let me follow that logic out uh, just for a bit. No one denies that the state constitution of North Carolina governs state elections in North Carolina, elections for governor, for state assembly, for state senate, for the comptroller and the secretary of state and the attorney general, and, and actually for local elections too, for mayors and, and dog catchers and city council uh, members for that matter. So if the North Carolina Constitution, as construed, By the North Carolina Supreme Court applies to all those elections? And the United States Supreme Court somehow says, oh, but when it comes to congressional elections, we're going to second guess the North Carolina Supreme Court as a a routine matter or "Or disregard the North Carolina Constitution because we don't think that it it applies. The North Carolina legislature floats independently of the state constitution or – more modestly, is governed by the state constitution, but we're going to decide what that means and second guess the North Carolina Supreme Court whenever we want. If the U.S. Supreme Court were to accept either of those extreme ISL positions, uh, General Pilogar suggested in her opening, that's going to be chaotic because you're going to have like different rules for, for example, when the absentee ballot is due, where you have to drop off. The ballot, um, how many days you have um, to cure a signature um, question for uh, mail-in ballots, etc., etc., etc. That would be utterly chaotic. And she slipped in that point. Neil mentioned consequences. They they both mentioned text, history, structure, longstanding practice in all the states, consequences more generally, and of course, uh, Supreme Court precedents that are absolutely on point and supportive. Neil focused a little bit more, for example, on the precedent when he talked about the Rucho case and its language. She focused a little bit more on the precise um, consequence that would be very disconcerting, uh, different rules um, for different elections that are actually held on the same day and until now under the same basic set of rules.
1: Would you say that either of them made originalist arguments?
2: I say both of them made spectacularly originalist arguments. That's what text history and structure is. Text history and structure is originalism. And it's to be distinguished from pure consequences or pure precedent. Now, sometimes all of the arguments point in the same direction. And when one has a winning case, that's what you see. All the arguments point in the same direction. This is what you did not see, folks, when we were talking about Dobbs. General Prelogar um, argued that, and you didn't hear me praise her in that episode because I didn't really hear the textual argument. Um, process means process, not substance. There really wasn't a lot of originalist history that supported um, Roe versus Wade. So she said precedent, present, present, okay, but that's all she said. Here she said text, history, structure, as did Neil, and consequences, and tradition and precedent, everything
1: so what did she what did they say that was text i mean i know that prelogar um echo she quoted the articles of confederation she mentioned that the articles of confederation used nearly identical language to that of the uh of the u.s constitution is that what, what you consider text or do you consider that history or both
2: yes yes so they're both um uh, explaining that the and now, again, remember, this is just their opening. They, yes. they, they elaborated it, mm-hmm. but their basic position is legislature has to be understood in context. And in context, legislature at a minimum includes the ordinary lawmaking process of a state, which includes uh, the applicability of the state constitution to the state legislature and judicial review by the state Supreme Court of state legislative output for conformity with the state constitution that's all part of the ordinary legislature the ordinary lawmaking um, process um, and they're going to elaborate that in and they did elaborate that later in but 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 just in the first two minutes signaling what they're going to emphasize see in in Dobbs, they couldn't signal that they're going to emphasize text because they didn't have a text. They had you know, a, a word that says process that they're trying to read to mean substance, and substance and process are actually rather different things. You're referring, oh, there to
1: hear... to, you're referring there to due process, correct?
2: Yes, the due process clause. Now, you're going to hear some discussions later on in some of your clips about substance versus procedure in in this context, but way back in Dobbs, um, the argument for Roe versus Wade was an argument for the precedent of Roe v. Wade, but not very much an argument based on the text of the Constitution. Roe itself, to repeat, does not even quote the relevant language of the 14th Amendment that it claims was violated by the abortion law in Texas. And John Hart Ely emphasizes that point in criticizing Roe v. Wade in a famous article that he, he wrote, which we've talked about, The Wages of Crying Wolf. Ely to to, to repeat, was pro-choice, a liberal, but believed in connecting things to the Constitution. And that's exactly what Roe never came close to doing. My brother, Vic Clerk, for Harry Blackman, we liked Harry Blackman, but Roe was not remotely a textual opinion. It was a textual disaster. And in the Dobbs case, General prelogger basically didn't say anything at the beginning or in the middle or at the end about text. It was basically just press and press and precedent. And, and uh-huh. here, Out of the gate, she's saying we've got a textual argument. The textual argument, Justice Gorsuch may not understand it or may not accept it, but the textual argument is the legislature is the ordinary lawmaking system under the state constitution, which at a minimum surely includes stuff like a governor's veto and state supreme court judicial review for conformity with the state constitution, procedural and substantive conformity with state constitutional rules. That's that's what's all built into what legislature means because legislature in the, in the U.S. Constitution doesn't float freely; it actually has an embedded meaning if you pay attention to text history and structure.
1: Yeah, and Neil made an argument along those lines when he said, essentially, just paraphrasing him here, but he said that. In the entire history of of the Republic, there's no lawmaking process or no you know that no no legislative uh, lawmaking process that floats free of judicial review and state constitutions. So it just mm-hmm. It just has mm-hmm. never been the case that 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 there has been any state that had a species like that. And so how can it be that this has actually been constitutional law for 233 years and, and no legislature ever, you know, uh, was able to get the court to say, yes, you should do that. You should be able to do that. Yeah. Okay. That,
2: that's just not what a legislature means in America. Maybe it means something like that in some um, hypothetical utopia or dystopia, but not here in America.
1: Okay, so you mentioned substantive versus procedural in the context of um, this case, but also in the context of uh, abortion jurisprudence. Um, So, uh, you know, the petitioners make much of this distinction, um, especially in their reply brief. They say that, okay, we'll grant you that the, in this case, that the North Carolina Supreme Court um, can actually review the laws. It does have that ability. It's not completely free, so this is not the most extreme version of ISL per, on its face, uh, at least. Perhaps it is in reality, but on its face, it, it isn't. But he says, "But they say, but their review is limited to questions of procedure, which they used the the term, uh, jumping through hoops.' That uh, you know, what hoops do you have to jump through in order to, you know, get to the the finish line?" Other than that, the rest they consider substance or substantive. So they drew draw this distinction. They say no, you can't review, you know, substantive matters. Okay. So now, um, what I'm going to play for you is the first question that the first questions that were asked of petitioners. So first, it's Justice Thomas, and then briefly, and then right after that, um, Chief Justice Roberts uh, chimes in. And, you know, I'm sitting there listening to this, and I have to say, you know, I'm, I'm rooting for the case to come out in favor of respondents, because I, I think that's, that's right and better right for the country. Um, and uh, I was gladdened by his question. But, uh, so anyway, so here's, here's this clip. We don't normally review state Supreme Court's uh, uh, interpretations of state constitutions. So what I'm looking for is why, for example, if this were a case about a state legislator uh, or a legislative district, um, it'd be doubtful that you'd be here under the state constitution. So I'm looking for an explanation as to why this case is here and what's the jurisdiction for this case. How does it differ from a purely state case?
3: Well, Your Honor, our, our position on the merits is to take as given state law as interpreted by the North Carolina Supreme Court. We're not asking this court to second guess or reassess. We say take the North Carolina Supreme Court's decision on face value uh, and as fairly reflecting a North Carolina law. And when one does that, we see that there's a violation of the elections clause. Uh, and, and that's why we're here.
0: You concede that uh, state legislative action under the um, uh, elections clause is subject to uh, a governor's veto, right? Yes, Your Honor. Well, the governor's not part of the legislature. Why, is, why, why, why do you concede that point?
3: Well, Your Honor, um, first of all, we're not here to relitigate Smiley. We're, we're prepared to accept all the court's precedents, number one. Number two, I think uh, the, the Arizona dissent pointed out that Samuel Johnson defined legislature by reference to Matthew Hale's definition, where he said the three branches of the legislature, the two houses of parliament and the king, because it was understood at the time of the founding New York and Massachusetts, had gubernatorial vetoes, so it was understood uh, that the the governor had a role to play at the time of the founding, and at least it's arguably
0: grounded in the text. Well, given Smiley, if your uh, concession doesn't uh, undermine your position, uh, doesn't Smiley? I mean, that's a pretty significant exception. You have otherwise a very categorical uh, uh, case, um, and it's sort of well with this one exception. But uh, vesting uh, the power to veto the actions of the legislature significantly undermines The argument that it can do whatever it wants.
3: Well, Your Honor, that's a
0: procedural limitation.
3: Um, And as we understood Smiley, it was talking about defining the legislative power. And here we have a separate issue. We have trying to limit that legislative power. So, however, the legislative power is defined uh, under Arizona, under Smiley, we are not, uh, you know, we, we can take. Those precedents is given, but what can't happen is there can't be a substantive limitation.
0: Well, and just last and last question, at least for a while, Um, why do you say it's procedural? Let's say the governor is opposed to the uh, uh, legislative action uh, with respect to the elections. um, Then uh, that the legislature endorses. He's the opposite political party, has a whole different view, and says, you know, gives a speech saying you know it's wrong because of this not because of procedure that strikes me as saying oh you know they're supposed to have you know uh, uh, two votes on it or whatever and they didn't or you know it's a uh, they need a committee report that sort of thing is procedure straight out veto we really don't know what it is
1: okay so so much for substantive versus
2: procedural it seemed to me we'll hear more about that Andy soon enough but let me just Take these two questions, sets of questions, uh, from two prominent conservatives, the most senior associate justice on the United States Supreme Court, Clarence Thomas, first, um, and the chief justice, um, who is ex officio, the most senior, John Roberts. And if you take what they say seriously, we absolutely win the case. I just hope that they understand (laughs) what, what it is that they really asked and why the answers were utterly inadequate. Justice Thomas, who um, actually was a vote for ISL in Bush versus Gore and uh, has until now not signaled departure uh, from that, actually asked a great question. Justice Thomas is willing to change his mind and has changed his mind in previous cases. And in Bush versus Gore, the originalist issues were not uh, carefully teed up by The lawyers, by the litigants. It was um, a very fast-paced emergency set of, of arguments. Here's what he asked. He said, if this were a case about state elections for governor, for state assembly, for city council or mayor or dog catcher, for state or local election, everyone would acknowledge that the state constitution applies to state and local elections, and the state constitution generally means what the state Supreme Court says it means, and the U.S. Supreme Court have basically almost nothing to do, right? And I say, right you are. The only thing that could be said is if a state court were so utterly lawless and just making up rules, not acting like a court at all, um, so as to violate due process of law, that would be a federal issue and the U.S. Supreme Court could intervene, but, oh, it would have to be utterly ridiculous and outrageous action on the part of a state Supreme Court which is purporting to apply to the state constitution. It would have to be just making things up completely in unprecedented ways for the U.S. Supreme Court to get involved if it were a state election. It would simply be a question of due process. Now, I believe, actually, the fact that it's a federal election doesn't change that at all for the reason that we heard earlier in the clip from pre-logger because you don't want to have different actual um, election rules um, as applicable to state elections on the one hand and federal congressional elections or presidential elections on the other. So actually the standard of review here should be one that's exceedingly deferential to the state Supreme Court court, the US Supreme Court should actually have to say what they've done is so outrageous, the state Supreme Court, that we would invalidate it even if it were a pure state election. And the test for that is just a very deferential one to the, the state supreme court. Um, just it would have to violate fundamental precepts of of a of fair notice, of, of, of law, of of due process of law. So that's actually what was behind Clarence Thomas's question. And and I just take out a position that I summarize. I'm summarizing a position that Vic and Steve and I put forth in our brief. That's actually the correct position. We'll come back to this technical question later. But it's implicit in the answer to the very – in the question, the, um, the very first question you heard from Thomas, which is, you know, if you take it seriously, Justice Thomas, I hope you do take that seriously that question because it means that we win and you should modify your position on – in Bush versus Gore, and you've done, and you've changed your mind on other things. You should change your mind here um, because now we have originalist briefing in a way that you didn't way back when. Now, the chief's question. The chief's question comes back, Andy, to what you were saying, asking before, was there a textual argument? The textual argument is simply as follows. What is a legislature? And if you look at it in a flat-footed way, well, the legislature is the state assembly and the state senate, but if that's true, the governor isn't part of the legislature, and that's what the chief was saying, um, but if the governor is part of the legislature, and the petitioners conceded that he was, and the Smiley case that you heard referred to said unanimously that he was, and that's in a unanimous opinion in 1932, uh, authored by Chief Justice of the United States, um, Charles Evans Hughes, well, if the governor is part of the legislature textually, Why? Because the governor is part of the lawmaking system as defined by the state constitution. But if the governor can be part of that, why can't judicial – why can't courts be part of that? Why can't judicial review be part of that? Indeed, Smiley was based in part on a New York practice in which the veto was jointly held at the founding by the governor and judges – And judges were involved in the the legislature, in the lawmaking process in 1789, 1792, and Smiley said all of that. Well, if they could be involved in 1789 and 1792 in New York, why not in North Carolina today? And more broadly still, doesn't Smiley stand for the proposition that legislature isn't? the state house and the state Senate, which is what Justice Gorsuch actually thinks. I'm going to hear from him later. He thinks it's, and and we call this in the brief, the flat footed definition, just the state house and the state assembly and the state Senate. But that's not true. If the governor's part of the system, even though in ordinary language, people wouldn't say the governor's part of the legislature, but for this purpose, he is, she is. Well, if the governor can be part of it, why not courts and judges? And they were in 1789 going forward, and Smiley says all of that, and this lawyer conceded the, correct, uh, the correctness of Smiley. Well, that involves courts. Why can't a state constitution define legislature howsoever it wants? Why can't it make the voters the legislature in an initiative and referendum process? Why can't it make a, a state commission uh, the redistricting commission, the relevant legislature, which is what the Arizona case held, and this council conceded Arizona also. So just those first two questions and the concessions, actually, if you take them seriously, um, we're done. Um, and that's why, Andy, you looked at me and you actually gave me a friendly little nudge at a certain point because, oh, it started very well. These are two two most senior cons- um, um, Republican uh, jurists, the chief justice, most senior ex officio and the person who's actually sat on the court, the longest Clarence Thomas and the questions they ask, if you think about them all the way down and deeply, they're absolutely. And, and the concessions that the petitioner's lawyer made game over. And, and actually, truthfully, the lawyers on our side didn't quite say um, uh, what i just said as kind of clearly and emphatically perhaps as as i just said they they staked out kind of um, middle positions at some point and i'm staking out the pu- the analytically pure logical uh, coherent most coherent position with all due respect to, to all the lawyers and, and, and the jurists
1: so the the attorney for petitioners is trying you know saying yes okay you're right, um, the governor is part of the lawmaking apparatus. The governor is part of the legislature for this, but on, that's a, only for procedural reasons. And then the chief justice went further to say this distinction, He, you know, explain it to me, given that the veto can is not limited to, I'm only vetoing it because it's, you know, you have to walk down four steps or something, you know, some procedure. But rather, I'm but,
2: vetoing because they don't like the bill. Right, exactly. Yeah. And, just and what he that's said. not... Set. And if that's not substantive, what is? Right. So, and, so those... and if the governor if the governor can veto a bill because he, he doesn't like it, so could the judges who were part of that veto in New York, part of that council of revision, because they don't like it. If they can veto the bill because they don't like it on day one when it's presented to them, why couldn't they much later in the process veto it because they don't like it um, and call it judicial review? And if they can do that, why can't they do something a little bit less saying, it's not just that we don't like it. It's that we think it actually violates deep state constitutional principles. Why is that a lesser included power if they could veto it at the very beginning? If so, authorized, here is the key, by the state constitution. So in the end, all the rules here are the rules of the state constitution, and this procedure substance the thing is just totally made up.
1: And that's exactly what the New York Council of Revision did in seventeen ninety two, as Neil points out later in the oral argument, that they they vetoed a bill that purported to regulate congressional elections, and the reason, and this is judges in the, on the Council of Revision plus the governor, uh, who's also on the Council of Revision in New York, and the, their stated reason they gave a you know message that communicated their stated reason was it violates the state constitution. It violates and the New York state constitution and that
2: 1792 experience is is just a smoking gun piece of evidence for neil he didn't have that piece of evidence a couple of months ago it's not featured initially in in his brief but he came to um, learn about this andy in part because this fellow named andy lipka doing independent research you know found this brought it to my attention and I wasn't paying attention. And Andy says, damn it, this is really important, the 1792 thing. And oh my gosh, it was, and Neil highlighted it. So Andy, you know, if that wins the case, you know, you're the guy who found the smoking gun.
1: Yes, we also have to give credit to someone in Neil's uh, firm who also found it independently after me. So, okay. So anyway, um, this question now of, which was, in, you referred to in your an- in your answers just now, your discussion, about the legislature being a, a creature of the state constitution, this idea was picked up uh, by Justice Jackson, who uh, asked this question uh, soon after uh, Justice Chief Justice uh, um, Roberts. State
6: but can courts. I ask you a question? Um, can I ask you a question? Because yeah. you, you, you suggest that um, there's this thing called the legislature that the framers were familiar with. And I'm I'm trying to understand why what counts as the legislature isn't a creature of state constitutional law.
3: Well, Your Honor, I I think this court in Arizona did say that the states have a lot of flexibility in terms of defining uh, what state legislature means. But what Arizona did not say is that there could be substantive limitations. But but I don't understand how that's a different thing. In other words, if the state constitution
6: tells us what the state legislature is and what it can do and who gets on it and what the scope of legislative authority is, then when the state Supreme Court is reviewing the actions of an entity that calls itself the legislature, why isn't it just looking to the state constitution and doing exactly the kind of thing you say when you, when you uh, admitted that this is really about what authority the legislature has? In other words, the authority comes from the
3: state constitution, doesn't it? No, Your Honor. It's a federal function, and we know that from Lesser. So this court in Lesser held it's a federal function. When these duties are assigned to the states, that is a a duty that is assigned by the federal Yes,
6: it's a duty. The duty is to uh, make this legislative determination, that is, the determination about elections. My question is, where does the entity's power come from? to make any determinations at all, right? I mean, yes, I see that the federal constitution is giving them the right to make a particular determination, but they're not giving just anybody in the state that right. They're giving somebody called the legislature, and in order for us to have a thing called the legislature, we have to look at the state constitution to determine where those, you know, what that entity's powers are, how they can be exercised. Other than that, I don't really understand how the legislature is authorized to act at all.
1: So that's Justice Jackson.
2: And I've never met Justice Jackson, and I just love what she said. That's so well done. She clerked for Justice Breyer, so did I, so did Neil, but at different times, and that's originalism. She's making arguments about what the word legislature means in structural con- and historical context. That's originalism. Well done. You know, I'm, It's possible that she may have read the amicus brief. Um, whether she's read it or not, she's absolutely channeling it. Um, she, um, she, whether, whether she's uh, getting it from the amicus brief or seeing it independently, yes, 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 just so. Justice Jackson, very well done. Um, and what did he say in response? He responded with a case, not with an argument from text or history. The case is called Lesser, and the case has nothing to do with lawmaking, state lawmaking. It has to do with a very different part of the Constitution having to do with constitutional amendments in which the state legislature isn't making a law regulating an election of the sort that um, – they're doing under article 1 for congressional districts and article 2 for presidential electors so he just he mentioned he didn't have a good textual response or st- uh, structural response or historical response uh, he didn't have a good original response especially given that he conceded the smiley case about governors and the Arizona case um, in which the state constitution basically vested a lot of power to Commission okay so once he concedes those he's 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 conceded actually her definition of legislature, I think. Um, And all he then had in response, very lamely, was a case called Lesser, which he mentioned five different times over the course of the three hours. And that case is utterly different because it's about Article 5, which has its own very different logic and set of of, of rules. As actually um, cases like Smiley and Arizona and rucho all say they all you know they, they say yeah, yeah they say you have
1: to distinguish based on what the legislature is doing at the time that that ratifying is different from lawmaking
2: as vic and i and steve explain in our brief sometimes a word like legislature means different things in different contexts just like Sometimes corporations count as people and sometimes persons and sometimes they don't. They count as persons um, when it comes to procedural due process, but they don't count as persons when it comes to voting on Election Day, one person, one vote or, or for the census. Sometimes Congress means House and Senate when the president is giving the State of the Union to Congress. Sometimes it means House, Senate and president when, when a lawmaking uh, function is uh, contemplated. So he kept falling back on Lesser, um, and Lesser is utterly off point. And Justice Jackson completely understands the issue, I would say, on this fundamental issue, maybe better than any of the other justices she articulated with more distinctive conceptual clarity, text history, and structure. And she says, well, you know, a legislature is shaped, defined by the Constitution. It, it, it It looks a certain way. It has rules about when uh, pe- certain people meet in a certain place, vote in a certain way, and then what happens after that? There's a veto, or, and then there's a possibility of override and all the rest. Yes, it structures all that, but it also says what can and cannot be done. If a legislature purports to pass a certain law that is in violation of the state constitution, Justice Jackson says later, that's not a law. That legislature isn't properly acting as a legislature. A legislature is utterly both procedurally and substantively the creature of its state constitution she really nailed it this is just her first you know season on the court and and i thought she was great
1: one of the things that we noticed uh during the argument was how one justice would pick up on another justice's argument and uh sometimes even across the aisle um and uh Here's an example where uh, Justice Sotomayor picked up on this and then Justice Jackson uh, chimes in later. So let's go to
7: the the substantive procedural reason still distinction makes no sense to me because the only thing the Constitution, as I mentioned earlier, controls is the procedural issues. Time, place, would matter. But take a Lyme item veto provision, for example. In more than 40 states... These provisions empower governors to accept or reject legislation by altering its content. If, for example, a governor partially vetoes a bill to appropriate funds to administer congressional elections, is that a substantive constraint or a procedural constraint? Just a yes or no. It's procedural. Oh, it's a hoop uh, that
3: has to be jumped through.
7: Okay. So the governor uh, vetoes. A map drawn by the
3: legislature
7: and decides constitutionally permitted. Why is it substantive?
3: We're not saying. We're saying if a governor, consistent with Smiley, if a governor vetoes.
7: No, he, the, the constitutional provision permits him to, um, to alter the content.
3: Oh, to alter the content. That's well, what that, I said. Uh, that's the key distinction. If it's a hoop that has to be jumped through in order for the, the legislature to get the code of elections it wants, it's procedural. If it's a limit on their substantive ability uh, to get the code they want, it's then a yes it's
7: or no? Can the governor do this? Ca- can the governor
3: change the substance? No. Yes.
7: No. So that becomes substance instead of procedural. So your first answer has now changed. Um, a
3: veto is what permissible. about
7: a state Changing constitutional the provision is that precludes legislators from acting during special sessions on certain matters? Could a state court reject the congressional election bill if it is outside the scope of a special session, yes or no?
3: If it's outside the scope of a special session, that is a substantive limitation because they can't start the process.
7: It seems to me it's procedural in its most common understanding because it's a question of how you do things, not what's in it.
3: If you can't start the process, then it's a substantive limitation. It
7: it seems that every answer you give is to get you what you want, but it makes little sense. We have more than one occasion said— that we describe the task in Mistrata of distinguishing between substantive and procedural rules, as a logical morass that the court is loath to enter. And, when, and I simply, I, and, I, I what I don't understand, is the question that Justice Jackson asked you, which is, if judicial review, is in the nature. Of ensuring that someone's acting within their constitutional limits, I don't see anything in the words of the Constitution that take that power away from the states.
3: It comes from the fact that it's a federal function, and with respect to the legal morass, that's when this Court has taken a functionalist approach. We're adopting a formalistic approach, and it's my friends on the other side who are adopting a functionalist test. You can see this on page 57 of the state response. Mr. Thompson, yeah.
6: just following up on what um, uh, was just mentioned, I guess what I don't understand is how you can cut the state Constitution out of the equation when it is giving the state legislature the authority to exercise legislative power. It's the state constitution that is telling the legislature when and under what circumstances it can actually act as the legislature. So let me me ask it this way. What if — what is at issue? Is not any particular exercise of the state's legislature, legislative authority, such as, as its ability to make time, place, and manner determinations, Um, but whether the entity that is purporting to exercise that power qualifies as this particular state's legislature. So you can imagine that we have two different state entities who claim to be the legislature for the purpose of the elections clause, and both of them start acting as such. They set election dates, they have procedures, they issue competing maps and set set out different statements about when elections would be held. With that dispute — the dispute over which entity is really the state's legislature be decided by federal or state courts and which law would apply
1: okay so we didn't let him answer that question
2: that that is you and i but he he, he did try but wow that was great okay let me tell the audience why it's so great the audience should know that on a personal level i absolutely adore justice sotomayor um, the very first time i met her it was at an event actually in Pepperdine several years before she was on the Supreme Court. She was a judge on the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. And I'd heard a lot about her from our mutual friend, Guido Calabresi. He was my mentor and her colleague on the Second Circuit. And he always spoke very glowingly of her. And when I met her, I understood why. By the we, we spent a weekend, it was a weekend conference, and so we were there for several days. And by the end of that weekend... I honestly felt when I said goodbye to her, like as if I was saying goodbye to one of my closest friends from high school or something. She's she's just a wonderful human being. Now, I've been critical from time to time of some of the positions she's taken, but I absolutely adore her on this. Damn, she was good. She she was professor professor. Freaking Kingsfield, you know, and this this lawyer was the hapless, you know, first year student, you know, who who got sliced and diced Socratically. She, you know, I will your mind is mush, you know. I will spin the tumblers of your mind, you know, because she said, okay, let's just take a step back. You're coming up with this procedural substance of distinction, and it makes no sense. So here's how she starts. She says, okay, you said. That where there's a veto clause of the state constitution, a gubernatorial veto, that's okay. And he has to concede that because that's the case of Smiley, which we've heard about already several times. Actually, that's how John Roberts actually begins. That's his first question. The second question overall is all about Smiley. And Andy, you and I know Smiley is such a core key case. It wraps everything up in a bow because Smiley makes originalist arguments about the New York constitution in 17, that was on the books when the Constitution was adopted, um, which had a gubernatorial veto, um, but also the gubernatorial veto was connected to a kind of a judicial veto because the the veto was of an entity, of a body called the Council of Revision that included the governor with a bunch of judges. Okay, so if you accept Smiley, Smiley says the governor is part of the legislature. The gubernatorial veto is part of the legislature. But not in ordinary language, which is going to be the Gorsuch definition. The ordinary language, legislature is the state assembly and the state senate or something. But if the governor is part of that, and the gubernatorial veto is part of that, and that's clear from the founding and its understanding, clear from 1789 and 1792, and – if that involves judges as well, oh, that, now we're home, almost home. And that's why 1792 was so important because judges, and this is, Andy, what you found several weeks ago, judges were actually saying no to what the New York Senate and Assembly had, had proposed. Just saying that,
1: no, but also saying no for the reason that it violated the state constitution. That is and, about and, as
2: close to judicial review as you can get. Yes, it is. the You know, they're, they're one um, of, of their aspects of judicial review. So how is that different than the North Carolina Supreme Court in, in this case, saying what the state a Senate and Assembly have done is violation of the state constitution. So just so. OK, so Smiley is a, you know, a great case for our team, a bad case for them. And then when you add Smiley to that 1792 experience, oh, my God, it's almost on all fours now. Enter Justice Sotomayor. She says, you've conceded Smiley. And the chief actually said, if you concede Smiley, I don't know how much room you have left to distinguish it from from, from this case. Um, but she said, if a gubernatorial veto is part of the legislature, what if it's a line item veto, which 40 states have? And, and he had to say, oh, line item vetoes are not permissible because a line item veto doesn't merely say no to what state assembly and senate have proposed it in effect rewrites the bill the bill has provisions a b and c just straight up veto is nothing okay the governor vetoes the governor council revision veto and we have nothing okay and then the legislature can pass something again or something but A line item veto and the petitioners accepted that. They said, Oh, that's a, you know, we have to accept that that's smiling and unanimous Supreme Court decision from 1932. But now a line item veto, the governor says, Ah, the bill that is being proposed to me has A, B, and C. I accept A and B and I reject C. I veto line C. That has rewritten the bill. And the lawyer says, Oh, we're rewriting the bill. That's. That looks pretty substantive to me. That's not really procedure. And now she says, aha, you actually say you accept Smiley, but in fact you don't because 40 of the 50 states have not Smiley-style vetoes but line-item vetoes, and, and, and I've just kind of reduced you to gobbledygook because you know, you're saying you accept gubernatorial vetoes, but you don't accept gubernatorial vetoes. And then Professor kingsfield starts. she says, okay, how about, a state constitutional provision that says the state assembly and Senate have to, if they're going to regulate congressional districting, they have to to do so on a certain day, you know, or at a certain session. Um, And he says, oh, you know, that seems substantive to me. And she says, well, like the day you meet, that seems kind of procedural. So she's basically showing that this distinction is, you know, completely malleable and, you know, totally made up. And has no connection to anything that's really in the Constitution, but seems just designed to try to, you know, accept Smiley, but somehow limit it. And that's what she did. In addition, she picked up on Justice Jackson. Okay, she said, I want to follow up on – so she mentioned her by name. And then Justice Jackson leaps back in. This is like my from my misspent childhood when I used to watch this idiotic, the wrestling programs. This was a a spectacular tag team, okay? So she roughed him up, but good, walked over, you know, tagged Justice Jackson, who then comes in and completely, you know, completes the job by saying, because Justice Jackson understands the deep conceptual logic that. All of this, you know, what counts as the legislature, that's determined by the state constitution. And once you understand that, actually, there is nothing left of independent state legislature doctrine. And Justice Jackson does it here, also Kingsfield style, very well played with a nice hypothetical what if they're two competing legislatures you know and you're going to have to decide that happened in rhode island right in doors uh, rebellion. rebellion in the 1840s um but it's also the functional equivalent you see of the arizona case where in effect arizona said we have two legislatures the ordinary legislature that passes ordinary laws and a certain redistricting commission that in effect is the legislature of Arizona for congressional and state legislative for that matter, redistricting. And she says, well, isn't that if you have two legislatures, isn't it ultimately going to be the state constitution that decides? Yes. And the state Supreme Court that has to decide what the state constitution means? Also, yes. And once you say yes to both of those questions, then there's nothing left in effect to ISL. So, Justice Sotomayor had a great hypothetical with line-item veto, really, really well done, and with a special session restriction in a state constitution. And Justice Jackson comes in with the two legislature hypothetical, which, again, reinforces the correctness of the Arizona case, which the petitioners conceded. They're they're building on each other. They're going back and forth. This is what you can do when you actually have like-minded justices of a certain sort. I suspect that they did not coordinate. They tend, The justices tend not to talk to each other before our oral argument. Maybe they did. It's permissible for them to talk to each other, but, but it was perfect harmony there between their points, which also integrated both case law, Smiley and Arizona with text history and structure. Final thing, note that the lawyer was talking about his friends on the other side, which we've talked about before. So Andy, you have picked the best clips. That was a great moment in the courtroom. Really well done. A tip of the hat from yours truly to Justices uh, Jackson and Sotomayor. And to repeat, I've never met Justice Jackson.
1: And a tip of the hat to you for explaining that really clearly, I thought, as I was listening to it just now. The other thing, just before we leave this this clip, um, Justice Sotomayor said, well, for, just in passing, you know, all well, your substance versus procedural distinction, time place and manner those all sound procedural that's yeah. all that the that the Constitution addresses where does this procedural and substantive distinction come from come where do from you read yeah that it's all made up into it's that. all made yeah. up yes
2: yeah. yeah. um, she says it's it, you know it's incoherent and it's 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 all made up and those are connected because if you have a reason for distinguishing substance and procedure well then even though they're going to be close calls sometimes you actually have a metric you know, Yogi Berra Bayer famously said, Oh, if we could only move for space one foot, we get rid of all the close plays. They're always going to be close plays. The difference between, there is a difference between night and day, which is why proverbially we talk about the difference between night and day. But the difference between night and day is dawn and dusk, and there's shades of gray. And that's true of many distinctions that in theory are clear. The problem here isn't just that they're going to be gray areas and close calls and uh, at, at first space, it's that. You know, we don't know why we're asking this question because he just made up the distinction in order to um, avoid having to confront the deep logic of Smiley and Arizona. And they're bringing out, Justices Sotomayor and and Jackson are, the deep logic of these cases, which are connecting to the deep logic of the Constitution, and especially Justice Jackson, the deep logic of the Constitution, that all of these things are decided by state constitutions because what the legislature is who it is, how it operates, you know, um, how it operates procedurally, how it operates substantively. All of that is determined by the parent constitution of the state constitution as understood um, as interpreted as definitively expounded typically by the state Supreme Court. So all of that was was there. One final thing since we're tipping hats, you know, so tip of the hat to uh, the justices, but also their law clerks. And uh, by the way, audience, I have, I think, five of m- my students who are clerks this year um, at the Supreme Court, but none in those chambers. So this is not, I'm not, this is not some inside wink to my protégés, but I suspect that because these questions were so well-framed, they might have been written out at least uh, in advance a bit, and law clerks, that's one of the things that they often do, is suggest possible questions at oral argument. And Justice Breyer, whom I adore, um, who's going to be on this podcast, I clerked for him, as did KBJ, uh, Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson, uh, much later, was kind of famous for um, kind of wandering, um, long-winded uh, questions from oral arguments that he seemed to almost be making up on the fly. And that didn't seem to me to be the case here. Um, uh, I think they actually had, you know, when she said, just as so many, 40 states, she was very prepared. And maybe that was from some amicus brief or party brief. Um, I can't remember. There were so many briefs filed. Um, but but the law clerks, big tip of the hat to them, they prepared their justice as well.
1: And we're going to come back to this question that was raised in the discussion here of that, that uh, Justice Sotomayor described this substantive procedural distinction as a morass to try to, uh, to dig into. Now, that the reason we're going to come back to it is because it's going to be compared to other distinctions. But that does – so this is one of the problems here is, okay, you shouldn't have raised it in the first place because there's no basis for it, um, and it doesn't support your, your argument anyway, and it's difficult to administer – so all of these things are, are questions that kind of, you know, you might, well, you don't have to reach this issue of whether it could be minister, administered or not, but they, they do kind of pile on there. Now, we're going to uh, now cross the aisle and hear from Justice Kavanaugh, and this is uh, again on this substantive procedural distinction. Now, it's interesting because Justice Kavanaugh, you know, came into this argument uh, as a bit of a wild card from, from looking, you know, in terms of where is he, he going to come out. So there, there are various reasons to believe that he um, had some sympathy for the Bush versus Gore concurrence, which seems to support, you know, ISL in some form. But then there were also other reasons to believe that he would come out on the other side. So um, here, it looks like he's giving the advocate uh, for petitioners an opportunity by asking him about which case supports uh, what he's saying and what he's referring to is which case supports the notion that there is a substantive procedural distinction that's what he's asking about so let's let's hear uh... this this uh, question
8: your position seems to go further than chief justice Rehnquist's position in bush v gore where he seemed to acknowledge that state courts would have a role interpreting state law and that federal court review of that should be in his words deferential Uh, and simply should be a check to make sure that the state court had not significantly departed from state law. And he drew on a body of precedent that uh, has existed previously. And so I think the other side and the Solicitor General say that uh, stands for a general principle, which they're okay with, that there can be some federal court review of state court uh, review of state law deferential uh, so long as there's no significant departure. It's a general principle. Why is that? Uh, your position seems to go further in that, and I'm, where are you getting that out of Chief Justice Rehnquist's uh, concurrence, or are you saying that was wrong? No,
3: no, Your Honor. What we're saying is that we have a — that that was dealing with statutes. We're dealing with constitutions, and we have an even more deferential, a maximally deferential uh, position. We say, just take whatever the state Supreme Court says the law is, the substantive uh, law is, just take it at face value. Do not examine in any way whether it is novel, a significant departure, an impermissible distortion. Just take it at face value and then assess, did it place a substantive limit? on uh, the state legislature. So we would defer entirely for purposes of our liability arguments in this court to uh, and assume that what the North Carolina Supreme Court did here was correct.
8: And what do you think is the best case supporting this substance procedure distinction?
3: I, I would say Palm Beach County. I think the Florida well, Supreme Palm Court… Palm
8: Beach County, I, I thought, was simply saying uh, that there is a federal issue here, And we're going to remand to the Florida Supreme Court uh, so that it can uh, assess how to interpret its state law in light of the fact that there is a federal issue. I didn't – correct me if I'm wrong or or tell me what your position is, but I didn't see it doing a whole lot more than that. It was a 9-0 opinion, I think, just recognizing there's a federal issue.
3: Well, the the court cited to and quoted from McPherson versus Blacker for the proposition that there could not be any limit on the power of the state legislature. Then it vacated the opinion of the Florida Supreme Court, and it sent it back on remand for the Florida Supreme Court to assess and to clarify whether it was in fact using the state constitution to operate as a substantive limit. And the Florida Supreme Court understood because their prior opinion had gone on at some length. Did it
8: say substantive limit? It says, quote,
3: that. operates as a limitation upon the state in respect of any attempt to circumscribe the legislative uh, power, close quote. Didn't,
8: didn't use the word substantive, though.
3: Well, any limit. So maybe it's even more robust but, and would sweep Thank, up. thank you, counsel. Thank you. Several points here.
2: First, Brett Kavanaugh is asking about Bush versus Gore and The audience needs to know that one of the, to my mind, slightly unfortunate aspects of the oral argument was the rehabilitation of the Rehnquist concurrence in Bush versus Gore. Until now, the Supreme Court has never cited with approval Bush versus Gore. And I have have huge criticisms of Bush versus Gore. I articulated them in 2000, right when the decision came down. I wrote a piece in the LA Times, and we should put it up up on the uh, website. Uh, the last line of which is: "What will I tell my students when they ask me about Bush versus Gore? I will tell them that we must accept the decision, but we should not respect it." And then I returned to that in a lecture given in Florida before actually some of the state justices, Supreme Court justices, who had been involved in that case. Uh, a lecture that I gave, the Dunwoody Lecture, in I think 2010. It's a big theme of the article that Vic and I wrote in the Supreme Court Review, which, in which we referred to, um, Bush League arguments and as, as, as rubbish. So I myself have been quite critical of Bush versus Gore, including the concurring opinion by William Rehnquist, then Chief Justice, joined by then Justices Stalia and Thomas. They only they only spoke for three. It was a concurrence. It's not actually a binding Supreme Court precedent, you see. There were five votes for another opinion called the per curiam, mainly authored by Justices Kennedy and O'Connor, and that was an equal protection opinion. That said, actually, that Florida wasn't counting sort of chads with the same uniform standard everywhere, and that violated equal protection principles. I have some problems with that, and I've explained them, but Rehnquist... Joined by Thomas and Scalia, said something different. His was a proto-isl argument that the state supreme court was kind of making up rules and taking away authority that the constitution vested with the state legislature. Now that was about presidential elector selection. That was about Article Two isl theory. And Moore versus Harper is about Article one isl theory but these theories are kind of connected and so chief justice rehnquist was saying oh it says legislature legislature means legislature that is the the florida house uh, assembly and 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 senate and and seems the florida supreme court is intervening on the basis of the state constitution and they're not supposed to be able to do that because it it should be the the state legislature of um, acting independently that was the rehnquist theory it's an early version of isl and i think it's completely problematic now that opinion was did not benefit from detailed briefing by the the lawyers because it was sort of decided on an emergency basis but what we're seeing uh, what we heard in the oral argument was the rehabilitation of the rehnquist opinion even by justices who at the end of the day may limit ISL and and put it in a bottle, but they're still, you know, reviving, rejuvenating the Rehnquist concurrence, which to repeat has never been cited with approval by any Supreme Court majority opinion until now. Now I mentioned that there were a lot of SGs in the room, that Elena Kagan is a former SG and Chief Justice Roberts is a former acting SG. Solicitor General. Right, and Neil is a former acting Solicitor General, and Verily is a former Solicitor General, and Prelogar is the current Solicitor General. Lots of SGS. oh, there were a lot of Bushies, Bush v. Gore folks in that room, too. There was the current Chief Justice, who in 2000 was a young lawyer, conservative Republican lawyer, not yet a judge, who was part of the Bush legal team in Florida on the ground, Okay. And there were two other young, even younger Republican conservative lawyers on the ground uh, litigating those issues. And their names are Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett. And you just heard from one of them, Brett Kavanaugh. Oh, and then there was actually, even though he wasn't on the ground in Florida, Clarence Thomas, who helped decide the case and and joined that Rehnquist concurrence. So the audience needs to understand all of that. And that's part of the atmospherics. Bush is being, the Rehnquist opinion is being rehabilitated to a certain extent and that may be just the 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 price that must be paid for a general rejection of isl is at least some tipping of the hat to the bush three the concurrence but here's two things that brett kavanaugh said very much to his credit I'm, i'm very proud of him for having made these two points the first point that he made is that Bush versus Gore said nothing about substance and procedure. So not only does the constitution say nothing about this, you know, Bush versus Gore said nothing about that. Two different cases that were decided in Florida, two thousand. One is what we call Bush versus Gore. And that's the three justice concurrence. And he's saying that didn't say anything about substance versus procedure. And there's another case, an earlier case called the Palm beach case. Some people call it Bush one. And what he said is that decided precisely nothing at all, which is, you know, a theme that Vic and I have hammered home. We did it in our Supreme Court review article and in our brief, and it decided nothing at all. The reason you know that is it was unanimous. And he said, Kavanaugh did, it was unanimous. Therefore, it got the votes of people who emphatically rejected the Bush three idea. A few weeks, a couple of weeks later. So it got the votes of John Paul Stevens, who thinks the ISL, uh, proto-ISL argument by Chief Justice Rehnquist was, was, is absolutely ridiculous. But he joined Palm Beach case, B- Bush won. So did uh, RBG, who thought this uh, this ISL idea was ridiculous. So did um, Souter, who thought it was um, daft, and, and Breyer, who thought it was daft. OK, so Kavanaugh, to his credit, actually said, made two points. One. Bush versus Gore said nothing about substance procedure, which is now the line you're trying to push uh, to us. And Palm Beach said nothing at all. It was a unanimous opinion in which the anti ISL judges agreed. All it did was just remand to the lower court for uh, the state Supreme Court for clarification. That's just right. What did the lawyer say in response? He shuffled his feet and said something about an, an 1890s case called McPherson versus Blacker that says nothing about nothing. It's just a bunch of confused dicta. He was asked which cases, and he said the cases from 2000. And then when pushed, because Kavanaugh said the Bush v. Gore case says nothing about substance versus procedure, the Rehnquist opinion, and, and Palm Beach says nothing at all. He said, oh, McPherson versus Blacker, you know, which is an 1890s case. And it, by the way, also says nothing, as Vic and I explain in our Supreme Court Review piece, and as we say again with Steve Calabresi in our amicus brief. So we've now heard three, you know, several justices. They've all done their homework, you know, and and Brett Kavanaugh knows about those cases because he was there, you know, in Florida when they were unfolding in real time on the Republican team.
1: So maybe you could explain to me, you've said that uh, Palm Beach says nothing, uh, just remands. Basically, saying, right. Give you know, clarify this issue, and then we'll talk. R- you know. Right. Um, Brett Kavanaugh there, Justice Kavanaugh said, didn't quite say that uh, to my ears. It, it sounded like he said that it said that there was a federal issue.
2: What does he mean by that? That there's always, there's a federal, it's a federal election. There's some question. We admit that there's a a constitutional question here, but the remand was we want the state Supreme Court to clarify for us what it thinks the role of the state constitution is in this whole equation, because the Florida Supreme Court decision that precipitated Bush won the Palm Beach case, was a little unclear about what the justices, the state Supreme Court justices were saying and why. It it harkens back to the very first question that was asked in an oral argument by Justice Thomas. You know, is there a federal question here at all? The answer is yes, there is. There's a word in the federal constitution. We have to figure out how to understand the thing. And all Palm Beach said was there's a federal question in the case. We're not exactly sure how it interacts with state constitutions. We don't decide anything at all on that. We send it back to the state Supreme Court to clarify its its ruling, which, by the way, is an available option in this case, the current case, Moore versus Harper, The Amar Amar Calabresi amicus brief has 10 issues that we tease up, and the ninth question is actually about whether the court needs to, the US Supreme Court needs to reach all the big constitutional questions the answer is actually you don't you could just send it back to the remand it to the state supreme court for clarification about a couple of things so what is the federal question what is does legislature mean in article 1 and how should we think how, how should that be thought of thought okay. about and to what extent can the state constitution determine that question and if it is the state constitution that determines that question what's the role of the state supreme court in saying what the state constitution means and once the state court has ruled how much deference does the u.s supreme court owe to that state supreme court determination of the meaning of the state constitution defining the uh, proper um, uh, nature of shape of limits upon, both procedural and substantive, uh, I would say, and KBJ would say, the legislature.
1: Okay, so that's the ISL question in in, yeah. in sum. The, the reason yeah. I'm, I'm asking this is that the question, it, it matters what it, the question isn't. The question isn't, you're saying, oh, the North Carolina Supreme Court, or in the, the other case, the Florida Supreme Court, um, did this thing, X, did that exceed... You know, it, was that an inappropriate interpretation of the state constitution? That's not the question.
2: The oh, question no, Re- 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 Rehnquist thought that was the question. Um, but he didn't say substance procedure, um, mm-hmm. which is what these litigants are saying. So Kavanaugh is saying, you know, you don't really have a Rehnquist concurrence on your side because it says nothing. About, he says, show me the word substantive. Show me the right. word procedural. And the lawyer backed off and said, well, maybe he actually didn't say that. Maybe you think so? So the lawyer got sliced and diced by Kavanaugh, just as the lawyer got sliced and diced by Sotomayor and Jackson. Jackson says you're ignoring the state constitution, which decides everything. And Sotomayor says you're making up the substantive procedure thing. And Kavanaugh says you're invoking cases that don't say at all what you say. um, They say this is like the Princess Bride. I do not think that means what you think it means.
1: Okay. I mean, I think ultimately, and they're going to get it. The reason I, I'm pressing this is because later they're going to get into the question of where do you draw the line when the state court has, has, and we talked about this briefly before, but the and state we'll, court we're, has, we're, has exceeded its authority. And we're going to talk right, about gonna, it some more. We, we're not we, going to answer are, that and, question and, and, right now. Right. We, but
2: right. And, and, but uh, Andy, I did want to say one thing. Truthfully, Kavanaugh in those two different clips was segueing from one question to a different one. One is, What he's first asking about is, what's the standard of review in the United States Supreme Court of um, a state, a purported state court, state constitutional interpretation by the state Supreme Court? That was the first thing that he was asking about, the standard of review, and we're going to come back to that. But then he segued into a discussion of procedure substance, which connects that second question of Kavanaugh's to – KBJ and Sotomayor, and his distinctive wrinkle on it is what case supports the substantive procedure distinction and. And the lawyer said, oh, Florida 2000, the two cases. And he says, no, neither one does. Bush versus Gore, it doesn't say substance, The, the Rehnquist concurrence doesn't say substance procedure. And Bush won, the Palm Beach case doesn't say basically anything at all and was unanimous. And, and so neither of those. Sonia Sotomayor says it's a morass and you're drawing incomprehensible lines and um, you're, you're actually trying to say line item vetoes are different from vetoes. And KBJ says, You're ignoring the basic logic, which is uh, if the state constitution can be involved, you know, in, uh, for some things, it can be involved in everything because it tells us who the legislature is, what it can do, what it can't do, procedural substances, everything. And he says, you know, so she says, you've got no constitutional um, originalist argument. KBJ And Sotomayor says your distinction is just kind of incoherent and is going to invalidate the laws of 40 states and inconsistent with Smiley, you know, which is all about vetoes, but today vetoes are line-item vetoes. And he comes along and says, oh, and you've got no case that supports this at all. The two cases that you're pointing to don't help you at all.
1: So we're making so, a transition from originalism to precedent um, in in this argument here, and that brings in, of course – uh, Justice Kagan, who's um, an expert on, on precedent, and once again, she, uh, she called upon precedent here uh, in her comments.
9: Mr. Thompson, wh- I mean, why doesn't Smiley stand for a, maybe a broader but simpler proposition, which is when we, under- when we think about this word legislature, we're thinking about it as embedded in a system of constraints. And one of those constraints is the governor, uh, and another of those constraints is the courts. And uh, that's the normal way that legislatures operate and act, is as subject, not as absolute, but as subject to constraints. And Smiley said, we take that system as we find it. We take the constraint of the governor as we find it. Why not, too, then, the constraint of the courts?
3: We we agree, Your Honor, the the constraint of the court applying federal law. That's the teaching of Palm Beach County as we read that case. There was a vacator of the Florida Supreme Court to send it back after having cited — But it would be ordinary constraints, and
9: the constraints can come from the federal constitution or the constraints can come from the state constitution, state actors, state courts — operate in both spheres and do both things, and that's the ordinary operation of the courts. And that's what Smiley says. It's the legislature subject
3: to the ordinary set of constraints Uh, that operate on them. We read Lesser to teach that when it's the ordinary constraint is federal law, that it's bound by federal law. That's the ordinary constraint.
9: Well, if that's coming from Lesser, I mean, uh, uh, so then you're going to sort of our precedent. And I I would think that our precedent um, gives you a lot of problems. I mean, if you really take every statement that this court has said about the matter at hand, I'll just read you a few of them in their They're pretty recent, you know, Smiley is the one we've been talking about, and that says, just as Congress is subject to limitations in the federal constitution when it makes laws, and now I'm quoting, there is no intimation of a purpose to exclude a similar restriction imposed by state constitutions upon state legislatures. And then in Arizona, we say nothing in the elections clause instructs, and this court has never held that a state legislature may prescribe regulations on the time, place, and manner of holding federal elections in defiance of provisions of the state's constitution. And as to that point, the dissent was right with uh, the majority, so both of them uh, 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 took issue with the proposition that legislatures would exercise their authority uh, 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 without the constitutional checks um, Uh, that a state court provides. And then in Rucho, three years ago, the court um, assured everybody in a case very much like this one. It was a case about gerrymandering. And it says, complaints about districting need not echo into a void because provisions in state statutes and state constitutions can provide standards and guidance for state courts to apply in addressing gerrymandering. So one, two, three. In all recent cases— We've said, of course, state courts applying state constitutions typically constrain state legislatures when they redistrict, when
3: they enact election laws. Let me start, if I may, with Arizona, Your Honor. In Arizona, the plaintiff was the Arizona State Legislature. The Arizona State Legislature did not make any complaints about the substantive restrictions in that referendum, and it's not clear it would have had Article Three standing to complain about a constraint being placed on a different entity. So nothing in this Court's decision went to the substance that was in that.
9: Yeah, I guess what I'm saying is that in each of these three, we have very clear statements, and I appreciate the fact that this issue — was not the one before us in each of those three, just as it wasn't in um, the case that you mentioned to me that started off my quoting other things. If you're going to quote one at me, I'm going to quote three at you. <laughs> and you're right. We're here for the first time dealing with this issue. This is a novel challenge. So I'm not saying that we've, like, sat here as a court and addressed hundreds of pages of briefing on this challenge. I'm saying that three times in not so many years, we've understood this to be an established proposition of law.
2: Wow. Elena is great on doctrine. She was a great doctrinal scholar and dean of the Harvard uh, Law School, Um, my boss uh, when I was a visiting professor at the Harvard Law School, then Solicitor General of the United States, who argues cases before the Supreme Court and that needs to be an expert on doctrine. And she she's a precedent, 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 person. I've said that many times. And you know what she just gave us? Precedent, precedent, precedent. You know, Literally. three, yes, three precedents. And those were money quotes. And, oh, she took great pains to note that in the Arizona case, even the dissenters agreed. That was directly aimed at John Roberts, who wrote the lead dissent in the Arizona case. You see, and when she actually then uh, quotes the more recent case of Rucho that's written by John Roberts, because present people also need to count to five. She's a very practical person. She's in a Brennan tradition, and so she's trying to count to five and reminding, in effect, the chief that he believes in present. He himself said these things and what credibility will the court as an institution, she's basically, in effect, arguing, have if it disregards these repeated, consistent Recent pronouncements. Now, because she's a great doctrinalist, she admits, okay, it was a slightly different case that was litigated before. We didn't quite have briefing um, on all the issues the way we do now. Good for her, because good doctrinalists actually admit where a case might have language of a certain sort that may not have been sort of absolutely necessary to the outcome, whereas it's it's the issue at hand. But then she said, okay. I agree that the, we're confronting this issue cleanly and squarely for the first time. But we've taken these principles for granted again and again and again. They seem to be so obvious and basic. And actually, at least one of their quotations was actually, I think, the, the one from Arizona. Nothing in the Constitution or our cases suggests that legislatures, you know, float freely. So that's an originalist precedent. You see, it's it's self-glossing the constitution final point what does the lawyer say in response you know he keeps saying you know this, this lesser case lesser case has nothing to do with anything because it's not about article one which is the case at hand uh, congressional districting or article two uh, presidential election election uh, selection it has to do with the constitutional amendment process under article five which is a totally different thing So, um, Andy, um, I think we should call this episode More on More, Less on Lesser, okay, because Lesser has nothing to do with it, even though this guy keeps lamely invoking Lesser, which is emphatically and squarely distinguished in all the cases that we are actually mentioning that that, that court goes out of its way in in Smiley in Arizona to say, Lesser has nothing to do with that, that's Article 5, this is um, different, Article 1 and 2.
1: This has been fascinating so far. We've got a lot more to say. We've, we've heard from um, from most of the advocates. We have yet to hear from uh, former Solicitor General Varelli. Um, and we've heard from two thirds of the justices. We have yet to hear from uh, Justices Gorsuch, uh, Barrett, and Alito. And we believe me, we will hear from them. <laughs> so, in, in in our next episode, they will they will have prominent uh, roles. Um, so again, a lot more to say, and uh, I think this is great because, first of all, it's it's interesting to hear everybody in action, but also it really you're you're able to put the the arguments in a way that people can understand them, and I think that's really going to be true when we hit uh, Justice Alito in the next uh, episode, who had an argument which was at once you know profound and yet can be um, answered. Um, so here's what we've
2: been trying to do, Andy, and it's hard. We're trying to actually make this as understandable and transparent as possible to our fellow citizens, lay folk, okay? And that's one thing that we are – and these are technical issues, and we're trying to actually you know, explain them as clearly as we can for them. But truthfully, I'm also hoping that this podcast will be of benefit to uh, the clerks who are uh, – right now, even as as we speak – probably starting to compose various drafts. And if they listen to this podcast, I actually think may benefit them. Even the justices understanding how everything fits together in a certain way, because that's what we are trying to provide that may not have even been so clear in the room, because now we can step back and pull it all together and show how all these things actually connect up to a clear, cogent theory that, in my view, um, and this is the theory of our amicus brief, makes text, history, structure, and the precedence, and common sense and consequences all perfectly line up. So among the questions we're going to have to answer in the next episode is, what should the standard of review be when the Supreme Court of the United States is reviewing a state Supreme Court interpretation of the state constitution has applied to the state legislature, which is mentioned in the U.S. Constitution? What should that standard of review be, which is connected to actually the very first question that we heard from uh, the the senior associate justice, the senior most justice by by years of active service, Clarence Thomas, what should that standard of review actually be? Um, Justice Alito was particularly, uh, I think, penetrating in his questioning about that. We are going to hear from my friend. Sam Alito, and and I'm going to try to give him a very clear answer to his very clear question, uh, and we'll hear from the other justices as well. Um, uh, so stay tuned. You know, when when the uh, brief was written, or uh,
1: Amicus brief, uh, you wrote it in an unusual way, and almost like an FAQ, it asked a bunch of questions and then endeavored to answer them. And it's interesting to look back at those questions now and to see whether those questions got asked in one form or another or answered at least, uh, during the, during the oral argument. And I think they certainly did. I mean, just to give you a couple of examples, looking at the questions, there was one, what is the proper role for federal courts here?
2: Yes. What that's, about that's, this
1: court's proper prior case law? What core constitutional question does this case raise? So these yes. are examples of questions that, you know, are answered in the brief we think, and we're squarely taken on here. So, uh, you know, very interesting to look at it from that point of view okay so thank you and we'll be back next week